Good afternoon. Good afternoon, my beautiful brothers and sisters. This is, uh, we're here now in the summer of uh, 2020, beautiful uh, California day here. So we're here with the uh, the first intro episode to uh, our obligation. Uh, for those who are just tuning in, this is uh, an, uh, just a uh, some audio content we have for you guys featuring different areas in which Black people have either been, you know, where we dominate the field or somewhere where just areas in which we have a big influence on American culture. So with that being music, you know, mental health, of course, sports. So here today too as well, we're focusing on our music. Starting off the first episode, give you a little entertainment. So we're here with uh, one of the man you know, who I know has always had a real powerful voice in the Bay Area, not in just, you know, Northern Sonoma County, where it's, you know, can be very whitewashed to say the least, but um, one who just made himself present throughout all of the Bay Area is my, my man here at Damien X. So. How, how you doing, brother? I'm blessed. Too blessed to be stressed, man. I appreciate you having me. Man, too blessed to be stressed. Definitely, man. We alive and well, so we can't. No complaints. But, uh, yeah, just wanted to start off. I know, you know, I've known you for, uh, you know, several years now. We've done a couple things here and there, you know, working in uh, in the community. But for those who don't know you and don't, uh, haven't heard your name yet, unfortunately, you just give a little background about yourself and just uh, tell us who you are. No. Uh, like I said, like brother said, my name is Damien Square, aka Damien X. Uh, I was born in Alabama. Uh, both of my parents were in the military, so I had my fair share of moving around the country uh, and outside of the country. But um, you know, I came out to California because my, my mother and my everybody on my mom's side of the family is from Oakland, California. They were born out there, so I always had family in the Bay, and I was always out here in the Bay for you know holidays and events and parties and birthdays and things like that. So um, you know who I am at this point is you know I'm just an individual who is trying to carve out their their lane and their path in in life and um, doing it in a way that's true to myself and true to my people. Mm-hmm. Straight up, man. Straight up. So, yeah, can you just speak a little bit on how the, you know, the dynamic of growing up in the South and then coming here to the West Coast, you know, Black, I mean, Oakland is still, a, you know, predominantly Black, historically Black city for its accomplishments and the demographics. Can you just describe a little bit the dynamics of living, going from down South to coming out West? Yeah, in the South, it's a lot more slower. People are a lot more uh, stuck in their old ways. Uh, in the South, it's a lot of uh, what you see is what you get. It, mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I can really appreciate about the South, and that's one of the things that I miss about home. The lines are clearly, clearly drawn. The designations are clearly, you know, obvious. You know, you on that side, we on this side. We respect each other, and that's where we're going to leave it. Um and outside of that, uh, you know, just have Southern hospitality. People are very friendly. People say, hi, how you doing? Da, da, da. Um, in the Bay, it's very similar to that in terms of, like, the hospitality. But in terms of, like, the, the clear designated lines, I think the lines tend to get blurred out here. And people that you think would be, you know, progressive or liberal or be forward thinking um, may present themselves that way. But actually in action, they're not. So, um, hmm. yeah, the Bay is interesting and unique in that way. But, you know, being that I've been in the Bay now for, you know, almost 10 years living here, this is the place I have never lived in one place longer than I've lived in the Bay. So, hmm. like, all of the game that you hear in my music and whatnot, yeah, it's an it's a accumulation of all of the experiences that I've had moving around. But just my way of delivering the game, we came from the Bay. The Bay taught me so much about you know, everything, life, just being in this environment, you'll soak up so much game. So 
Yeah, the Bay. The Bay is very special in my heart. You know, I always liked it since I was a kid. And uh, I'm glad that I was able to kind of come back here and start to really, you know, make my mark. Man, and that's and that's real. Oakland, like, I mean, I was born in Oakland too as well. So that's like the just the culture of the city and just knowing that it's just like unapologetically black. And it's like, it's always, you know, it's like art, the blackness is never hidden. It's never, you know, done for political you know, advantage or anything like that. It's just done because that's the voice of the city. Uh, so how would you say as far as like the, the pleasance of like, you know, the, you know, growing up black and, you know, in the South, how do you, how do you feel like that affected you, you know, and coming out here and just your mentality before you came out here and just as a man in general? I mean, just being in the South, you know, there's a high, there's a heightened sense of, uh, like racial awareness, everybody aware, like I said, of those lines that are clearly drawn. And I might've been, I need to correct myself, you know, uh, I'm on Malcolm's show, so I don't even got to speak in code. The lines that I was talking about, like out here, you have white liberals, you have white progressives in the mm-hmm. Bay that, you know, you would think would be on the side of people of color and black people and whatnot. And some of them in small pockets are, but mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them tend to be there just to, uh, reap off or eat off of the backs of people of color and then use your name to push their agenda. When in the South, white people, they're very clear, like, we don't like you or we don't want to affiliate with you. Uh, When out here, it's not so much. They'll present like they like you, but then they don't. Uh, But in terms of me being raised in the South, you know, I was raised primarily by my grandmother. My mother had me when she was 19 years old and she went off to the military. So my grandmother raised me. Um, up until I was, you know, six years old, six, seven years old. And uh, mm-hmm. just being with my grandmother going to church every Sunday, every Wednesday on that, on that pew, on that, uh, on, on, the, on the communion table, serving mm-hmm. communion and all that different type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, my grandmother, uh, she cleaned white people's houses, mm-hmm. you know, when I was growing up, that was her thing. White people would come to the house and they would drop off their clothes to her and she would iron them and wash them for them. And she would go to their house and clean their house. So I would, I grew up like watching my grandmother do that. So, um, you know, that really shaped how I view, you know, uh, society and my relationship to people that don't look like me in the society. Mm-hmm. Man, and that's 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 powerful because what is it's interesting, dude, is that the fact that you your grandmother was, you know, did that work because my grandfather moved from Hammond, Louisiana, can't was able to make a better life for himself. And my you know, my parents, my dad, I should say my parents, because he was a janitor and he moved, he had his own, you know, janitor, janitorial service and came down here and moved, be able to move our family because of that. And that's for a lot of people, you know, especially when they talk about, oh, that's some of your ancestors dealt with or your great, like your great, great grandfather had to do things like that. It's like, no, my grandfather had to be a janitor for, to make a better life for himself. And if most people, I, I'm, I will never look down on anyone's profession, but if you go out and ask 10 people out on the street right now, they will probably look down on the custodian or the janitor, but that made, that's what made my grandfather. That's, that's the opportunity he had. Just like we look at, I don't migrant workers now, it's a similar thing, you know, they're sacrificing, you know, they're, they're for the future, for the better of their, you know, the next generation. And that's, that's something that a lot of people got to think about. You also touched on the, you know, you ain't got to worry about talking no blurred lines or sensing yourself here. You can be as open as you want. But yeah, the liberals, for people limer, people who are on here and say, oh, I'm a Democrat. I can't be this. Or I'm a liberal. I don't think that way. It's like, ah, 
that label doesn't mean anything to me. It's like the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that that's just that's just a, a easy cop out for a lot of people, unfortunately. Um, so you talked about yeah, growing up and how that kind of you know that how that greatly influenced you know like you said your view on politics and just life in general. So uh, you know, growing up, uh, you know, of course that'll you know dealing with race and things like that will definitely influence how you the career path you choose and the life you want to live, right? So. Me personally, I work in I like to work, work, work in education because I want to give back to a lot of the kids who fall through the cracks and people who kids who look like me who didn't get that support in school when they needed it, right? And for you, I know you're uh, we met at Santa Rosa JC, um, a Black Student Union back then, um, but now I know you're currently at SF State, um, you know, doing some African American studies there. So you just tell us the dynamics of the campus and just how you know the history of how that has affected your decision to go to that school and just how it's influenced you to, you know, take that role. Yeah, uh, San Francisco State is a very, very special school. That, is, that's, that university is the first university to ever have a black studies program. It's also the first university to ever have a black student union. Um, it's also the first university to ever have a college of ethnic studies and a gender studies. Uh, so it's a, it's a special college in the sense of its like revolutionary spirit. Um, that revolutionary spirit has been tampered with over the years, but it's it's still there. It's just being you know suppressed, and we all know how that goes. These institutions wield a lot of power, and they're very bureaucratic in how they wield that power. Meaning that there's a lot of different layers that you gotta go through just to get to a person that can get things done. You know what I'm saying? And make it like that to prevent students to be able to really get things done. So mm -hmm. you know, on San Francisco State campus, it's like 33,000 students. Uh, African American students make up you know four or five percent of that. So you're talking about eight to 1200 you know black students on that campus um you know you have things like the black unity center the black student union uh the africana studies uh department those things are pillars on that campus and without those programs and those organizations like black students wouldn't have anything uh so yeah that campus definitely had a profound effect on me and uh my educational growth in terms of how I analyze racism, white supremacy in America. Mm -hmm. mm. And so you mentioned that there's only a 5%. I did a little digging too. I saw something as far as like the, the recent uh, students that coming here is about only about a thousand black students. I think it's about like some, about like, I don't know, say like 15,000 coming in, but I, don't call me on that y'all. But there is just regardless, there is a big discrepancy as far as like the number of black students coming in is my point. So you said representing only 5% of the population there and just knowing San Francisco as a whole in the Bay Area, you would know how the whole the whole area is getting gentrified. Everything is being, every city is being gentrified. So how would you say that's changed the dynamics of the campus and just as it's, we know it's changed the city, but how do you feel like it's changed the dynamics of the campus and the Black Student Union and the presence of Black students? It's changed the dynamics of the campus tremendously, you know, uh, that the, 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 the Black Student Union and the first Black Studies program was founded in 1968 and if everybody knows 1968 was a was a was a was a pivotal crazy year in america you know martin luther king was assassinated a lot of things was going on in uh, the united states of america involving race and assassinations and political imprisonments and all that different type of things and out of that you had movements like the black power movement and 
you know, Africana Studies program that came out of San Francisco State, which was led by Black students. Um, mm-hmm. You know, back in 68, back in that time, you know, Black folks were, you know, upwards of 40, 45% of the population in San Francisco. And the campus, you know, reflected that population. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the Black population in San Francisco is like down around 3%. And that is highly reflective in the campus population of of Blacks on that campus. And mind you, a lot of them aren't even, you know, African-Americans. They are, you know, uh, first-generation Africans, which, Mm -hmm. you know, the universities are very clever in how they use first-generation and second-generation Africans to pad the numbers of how many Blacks they actually have in the school. Mm -hmm. So where African-Americans have a particular history in this country in terms of slavery, the most consequential event in any African-American's life, uh, I really want to see much more focus put on enrollment, retention, and graduation of African-American students. All Black students in Tishwell, but particularly African-American because they have a particular obligation to us due to our historical uh, nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not, I mean, not being able to read, man, that's more, if you, if you ain't got motivated by your answers, not being able to read or not knowing how to read, then I don't know what more motivation is, you know, to you know, to better yourself, but that's, I mean, the, the campus also got to reflect and accept that, that that change is happening and do what they can to protect the students and protect that culture, you know, because then make students not want to come back or go there in general, you know? Yeah. And I mean, the campus, don't, don't get me wrong. The campus itself, San Francisco State is still very much racist. It's very, mm-hmm. it's a very volatile campus. It's a lot going on on that campus. You have, you know, racist, racist faculty. You have racist professors. You know, I had mm-hmm. a, a white female professor call the police on me in the middle of class, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. put my life in danger. Two police officers armed came mm-hmm. to the class. And we know that, uh, you know, whenever a police officer is around a black male, his chances of dying go up you know, increasingly, mm-hmm. you know, rather he has a weapon or not. So the lady put my life in danger for no reason. And, you know, I didn't raise my voice at her. I didn't curse at her and threatening her. And uh, that's under investigation now. But yeah, you know, wow. just being Black unapologetically. And, uh, you know, I was affiliated with the BSU, so I was involved in a lot of political activity. And so being Black and involved in political activity, you definitely put a target on yourself when it comes to, um, you know, being... Uh, embedded within these institutions and not, you know, operating outside of them per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then going against the grain, I mean, for anybody, you know, they always, people don't like that, but if you are a black man going against grain or going against what the quote unquote norm is, I mean, these, these systemic, you know, oppression, the systemic oppression, then that's definitely when people, you know, start to, you know, they want to call you out, unfortunately, or try to, you know, suppress that movement, suppress that voice. And it's like that. We're not going to keep fight. We're not going to keep quitting. We're not going to give up that easy, you know. Um, so just getting get into more into your music a little bit. I mean, that's who you know, you've, you know, you educated and we do all that. But, we, you know, you want to hear more of your music. That's where, your, you know, your voice is. And that's where you've chosen your avenue as at least a big part of your avenue uh, to get your message across. So what what you know, we know growing up, that was who you are. You've always been passionate about being black. And always been aware of, you know, racism and race in general. But why, why did you choose music as your avenue to, uh, you know, to make that change? Uh, and I mean, it's, 
I chose, I, I never wanted to be a rapper. Let's get that correct. I never wanted to be a rapper or aspire to be a rapper. I've been doing this music thing for like two years. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I think I need to get a better, I, I get it. I need to do a better job of getting across to the people who watched me that, and I wasn't always like on some super conscious pro-black shit. Like I was like, I have an auntie, my aunt Ava, she went to San Francisco state. She you know, got long dreads. She's been having dreads ever since I've known my auntie. Like it's my mm-hmm. mom's sister. Uh, she's like the most pro-black person in our family. And she was the one that was always my birthday. It was like pro-black books. And, you know, I didn't really understand it then, mm-hmm. but it was mm-hmm. in my subconscious. She was mm-hmm. planting seeds in my subconscious. So when I started to finally come, you know, it wasn't until I moved to California, you know, it wasn't until I moved to California, I was on my own as a young 20-year-old, 19-year-old in the world, uh, and I started working a lot of different jobs and I've worked over, you know, 10 different jobs in Applebee's, selling cars, Macy's, Radio Shack. I did it all. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a lot of years went by, six, seven years went by and I looked up and I barely had an under a under thousand dollars in my bank account. You know, I wasn't in school and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, you know, I was in and out of school because I was working. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what am I, like, what? You know, I was like 25 at that time when I really started to wake up and I'm like, what, what the fuck is going on? Like this game is rigged. Nobody told me, you know, mm-hmm. or at least I wasn't listening that the game yeah, was rigged. Yeah. It's designed for you not to get ahead. Mm-hmm. So I started waking up to the game slowly like that. And then it wasn't until I got to Santa Rosa Junior College mm-hmm. that I got exposed to like institutional racism. Mm-hmm. And that's when me and a friend came together to start the Black Student Union. Mm-hmm. And with that Black Student Union, we, you know, we did some powerful, powerful things, raised $18,000, went to Tanzania, built a school over there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's when I recognized my leadership skills as a Black man and tied that in with my like fiduciary obligation. I mean, like I have an obligation to the black community. Now that I know what I know, I have an obligation with the black community to share this information. Because even when I didn't know what I know now, I was always yearning for somebody to tell me, to show me. I knew I was missing something. I mm-hmm. knew when I was going up, like, you know, something was off, but I didn't have no like older black male or my, my uncle, like I'm a, my uncle Tony, my mom's brother, mm-hmm. my intelligence and the way that I talk mostly comes from him because mm-hmm. he he graduated school when he was like 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, he's you know, he lived with my grandmother. Yeah. You yeah. know, so he was a he played a big role in in like my intellectual development. He had me reading things. You know, it wasn't about race, but he had me reading other things, just about everything. He's, he has a lot of knowledge about everything. But anyway, um, yeah, man. So it wasn't, I wasn't, the, my, my, the point of me saying all of that is to say I wasn't always like this. It was a focus. It was a series of events that happened. And those series of events made me feel a certain way. And based on those feelings, I acted a certain way. And based on those actions, you have the result, which is me. Thoughts lead to feelings, feelings lead to actions, actions lead to results. Mm-hmm. So it's just like one, two, three, four. And now you have me. But I wasn't always like this. It's, this is a conscious decision on a daily, daily basis to live this way. It's a lifestyle. It's not posting you know, anything is not, uh, it's not for sure. It's like, it's a real ass lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's where we at with it now. 
Okay. Okay, man. And that's, I mean, especially now music seems like that's a, and especially with social media, you can get your, you know, you can get your name and get your things seen by millions and millions of people. And that's what we need to see right now is we need to see, you know, not just black people, but people are seeing black people, black men in positive image and just knowing that it's, you know, it's, we, all rappers aren't the same. All rappers don't look the same. Not all artists think the same. Not all black artists think the same. So, um, with that, with that being said, who does who do you really think is to blame for the negative image of rap music? So we know media is a big part of it. We know, I mean, there's two sides to to blame in this. But who do you really think takes more responsibility to blame for where rap music is and kind of like the the image it portrays to black men and just black people in general now, and to the media? Mm. That's a good question. You know, at the end of the day, we know that racism, white supremacy, like I said before, is a local, national, global phenomenon. And it is at the foundation of all of the disruption in society, especially when it pertains to Black people. Uh, Neely Fuller Jr., who was the mentor to Dr. Francis Cress Wilson, said, if you don't understand racism, white supremacy, what it is and how it works, everything else that you think you understand will only confuse you. Hmm. So we look at rap now and we see a bunch of black men with guns and, you know, misogynistic to black women and over hypersexualizing black women and talking about killing other black men. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. what, what is the basis of that? What is the reason of that? Like, like what frame of reference do those black men have to even talk about that? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? They're talking about real life conditions that were manufactured by real policies that politicians enacted to keep black people in a particular position. Mm-hmm. So the answer to that question is complex because it's it's it's, it's twofold. On one hand, you have the record on the record companies, the owners who push a particular frequency and a particular message that caters to their bottom line, their money. And it also is a dual in sword where it, where it pops out a particular propaganda, which socializes the masses that black people are thugs, criminals, so that we can just get shot down and nobody does nothing about it. People just turn the blind eye. And then on the other hand, you have rappers who some have actually lived that lifestyle and are telling that story. And then some of them have, are not living that lifestyle and are just uh, perpetrating a lifestyle that they know that our youth, our young boys and our young girls cannot survive. Mm. And they're willingly doing it. They're willingly selling their people out for, for, for money that these owners are paying them. So I would say it's like a, a 49, 51%. Majority of the owners is going to always go to these individuals that will the power. But the 49% goes to the the black artists that knowingly they know like if this time hasn't showed us anything that we in right now, these artists know, know, and they have known what kind of like turmoil that black people have been going through this whole time. And now they're just starting to want to rap about it and speak about it. So, you know, the onus is on them just as it much is it on the white record labels that are, perpetrating this music mm-hmm. onto our mm-hmm. definitely and like poison in the mind essentially that i mean that's really what it is and now especially we got the whole new you know like the perky zans and all that stuff now we got that's a whole nother like that's literal poison you know we got going on so that's but that's that's a whole nother a whole nother uh a whole nother episode conversation unfortunately um but this one though seems still on top of music another one that comes to rap like use of the word nigga so that's something that is like you know the 
the age old question now, I guess age old since the nineties is like, is it really something that's empowering black people or is it something that I think it's a complex, that's a very, very complex, uh, cause I feel mixed about it. It's a very complex question. Cause I feel mixed about it. On one hand, you know, uh, I'm very, very well aware and very well read about what happened to our ancestors and the type of feelings or, you know, what that word meant to them. Uh, and I respect them so much that, you know, I am very hesitant about how I say it. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side of that, as a young black male growing up in America, um, the word was so much used, like in my neighborhood growing up and, and with every black male that I growing up, that it, it it literally becomes a part of your vernacular. Uh, where the where the problem comes is with your intention with the words. You know, that, that word involves a lot of intentionality. Again, if you're non-black, you shouldn't be saying the word. Although uh technically anybody that's non-white and is subject to the racism of, of white supremacy is is a nigga uh, well, historically the word was reserved for african americans so our communication with the word is a lot different than how other use the word other people use the word gratuitously but our way of using it is basically it's our way of uh communicating this this shared experience of being black people who have been historically oppressed in America. And when you say, what's up, nigga, you don't think about that readily, but that's, that's how, that's how, you know, trauma genes, you know, trauma that's passed down over generation. That's how it, that's how it works. And that's how it morphs. You hurled, everything else was stripped away from us. So the only thing that was really, you know, Left for us to be able to kind of manipulate as our own is the the English language, and we've done wonders with that. And hip hop is is just a reflection of that. So the word nigga, you know, is just another way that black people have been the alchemist that we are, and taking mm-hmm. something that was once so negative, so mm-hmm. disgusting, so dehumanizing, and turned it into something where. Now you have people using the word in a celebratory way, even though the word has such a, a, a dark history. To be able to take something at once, if somebody said it, put the terror of God in a black person's heart. And now when, you know, I say that, what's up, my nigga, to my brother, mm-hmm. you know, it's like his heart might fill up with love and warmth because I'm his brother. I'm saying, mm-hmm. what's up, my nigga? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's... It's uh, it's 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 definitely a, a subject. I, I I understand both sides, like you said, that respect for the older generation to be like, I don't want to, you know, if they re- just out of respect for them, I don't want to, you know, pass on a keep saying a word that I feel like will hurt them to see me say. But same time, if the fact that we flipped it on his head and now that it's the fact that even white people want to say it, not in a way in a negative way, but just want they say it to each other, and then it's not it's not a great thing, but it's the fact that shows how envious and how like influential black culture is and black lifestyle is uh so i'll say how does your so we're talking about you know we say the nigga it can empower you know it empowers in some ways some people feel like it you know it, it does the opposite but i'll say in your music in terms how do you feel like your music empowers black people in general, in general? uh my music empowers black people by taking the energy that once was used to 
oppress us and kind of flipping that energy back on the oppressor. Like mm-hmm. Black men historically have always been the greatest threat to white genetic annihilation mm-hmm. per Dr. Francis Chris Wilson. And I strongly believe that as well. Uh, so for me, as a Black man standing and representing myself as unapologetically Black and rapping about things that black people we usually only talk about like in intimate you know spaces with with close people so um, you know song like black boys in blue that that song is about what if you know in 2004 the department of justice filed a report that said that police departments across the united states of america were being infiltrated by white supremacist organizations the song is about what if black power organizations infiltrated the police departments across the United States. Mm. What could we, what would we do if we were as abusive and as, as oppressive as them? Mm. And the song talks to, goes into great detail about what, what, what we do if we were as nefarious and as demonic as them with the badge. So those are stories that we would only share like, you know, smoking and drinking with buddies. But I chose to put that on wax because I want, you know, um, Stephen Biko, South African revolutionary, said that the greatest weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the minds of the oppressed. Mm. Mm. So, like, and just to add on to that, Nipsey Hussle said the greatest human act is to inspire. So if I can, like, inspire Black people, Black youth, Black men, Black children, Black individuals who are gender non-conforming, to think outside of the social construct that has been placed over our brains by white supremacy, to think about, you know, what it would be like to truly be free, to truly speak free, to truly like represent yourself in your blackness unapologetically all the time in the music, rawly, like my music, you know, yeah, you should be able to pull up to uh, a gas station, bump a Black Power Blueprint, mm-hmm. and white people would turn their head like, "What the fuck mm-hmm. is that?" You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of reaction that, like, like music that we can bump and be proud of. Because I know sometimes I'll be riding, and the white guy pull up next to me, and he's listening to YG, and it's like, "Nigga, nigga, nigga, yeah. nigga," this, and he's just yeah, vibing. and it's like, what the fuck? like I pulled up to white people playing my music, where it's saying "Black Power Blueprint for the Black Man," and they're looking at me with terror yeah. on their face. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to inspire in, in in black youth and black culture. Like we can we can push that envelope and we can take all of that energy that we had in the black power movement and all of our revolutionary movements. We can put it in our Mm -hmm. art and Mm -hmm. we can be, you know, I always wanted to show getting into music. My main thing, like I wanted to show the black youth that like you can be shiny you can be drippy. You can have money. You can, you can be fly and stand for Mm -hmm. something and be Mm -hmm. righteous. You know what I'm saying? So, like part of me catching a buzz and getting on, like I'm really glad you're catching this interview before I catch a buzz and before I, because I'm gonna get on, my nigga. You know what I'm saying? Like, there is, I'm gonna get on. But it's like, uh, 
like I want to I want to show the youth that like you can stand for something righteous and you can have gold on you can have a Mercedes Benz you can have the Range Rover you can have a nice house you can have a black queen a dark skinned black mm-hmm. woman you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. rap so it's like all it takes is one person to do it and do it mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. watch the floodgates open you know what I'm saying and it's gonna be a kid that come behind me that's gonna like gonna do it ten times better like you know what I'm saying but it's like it's who's gonna spark that mind who you know Tupac sparked my mind DMX sparked my mind uh, but who's gonna spark you know they mind the ones that don't know about them mm-hmm. okay that's real man and that's obviously that's funny I was just thinking in my head when you said to the last part I said if you had a Black Power Blueprint remix you know I was thinking who would you have on it and if you had some recommendations for people you know some artists to listen to who you really think you know spit some spit some real to listen worth listening to and change your thinking a little bit Oh, if I have remixed the Bad Power Blueprint, who would I get on that? Oh, man. Man, I would shoot for the stars. I would definitely have to get Cole on that thing. I would have to get Kendrick on that mm-hmm. thing, you know, for sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Something wicked like that, you know. Maybe even like, uh-huh. I like uh, Paris too, uh, uh-huh. you know, across the pine. He's dope too. Mm-hmm. But definitely Cole, uh, Kendrick, uh, Maybe Andre 3000 or something different, you know? I don't know. Okay, okay, all right. So, uh, you know, the music, you know, of course, you know, we talked about how there's a lot of influence on change and a lot of artists been coming out speaking about what's recently been happening. I mean, the whole world's been coming out speaking out. Uh, the past several months, you know, we had, you know, Death of Mount Arbery happen. We had Breonna Taylor die. We had Dreshawn Reed die. And, of course, the biggest uh, being George Floyd. Not the biggest, but I'd say, the, I guess, what people pay the most attention to now was a George Floyd one, and that's, you know, caused an outrage and protests across the whole country, um, across the world even. So I'll ask you, do you really, th- what will really take to end police brutality? And do you really think the way that police are currently being trained will actually have, like, we can't have an, a different uh, interaction with police based on the same way they're trained? Do they need to be trained differently? Uh, I don't think that there's any amount of training that's going to fix, you know, the police in their current state. Mm. Um, History has shown us over and over again that there's no type of reforms that are going to be able to change the police, how they police and their behavior. The whole I'm I'm with abolishing the police and replacing them with something else whether that be like uh, community members that police their own community whether that be an organization that is centered around self-defense and you know uh, conflict resolution and, and, and de-escalation anything other than the police who are rooted in the slave patrol and in capturing black men and bringing them uh back to uh enslavement like that the system is inherently flawed and at this point i don't think that there's no talking to be done with the system there's no reforming it i understand that there are certain levels to the game so we you know to a certain degree uh defunding the police is a, a good place to start but it definitely isn't the end all be all defunding the police is not is not is not enough you know what i mean uh, we have to out now abolish these individuals and then the individuals that make up the police, they're still going to go back out into your society. So, you know, what are you going to do about them? So there's a, you know, the, the police, this the, the symptom, they're not the actual disease. So, uh, you know, while I 
I'm very appreciative that we're having like this cultural awakening where a lot of people are starting to wake up and recognize what being black in America is really all about. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I just don't want our struggle to be pigeonholed and focused on the police because mm -hmm. racism, white supremacy is a local, national, global phenomenon and it mm -hmm. covers all areas of people activity, mm -hmm. economic, education, entertainment, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war for the ultimate purpose of white genetic survival. So yeah, until we look at the system as a whole in its totality, you know, we are, we're, we're chasing our tail. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we had, you know, we had some artists come out and make some music lately. Uh, some artists, some songs contributed to it. Um, but do you really think music can make a change and make be a big voice for making this change in society? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, I, I think that if used in the right way, hip-hop is the ultimate liberation tool. Hip-hop is mm. the number one most dominant musical genre in the United States, according to the data, and arguably it's the most influential on planet Earth. The whole globe is dancing to the music that these African-Americans, this small 12 13% of the United States population, 4 or 5% of the whole planet's population is making this music that the whole world is dancing to. So it's like if we were able to uh, put this music at a different frequency where we were actually speaking into our people in a liberatory way. And that doesn't mean that every song has to be Black Power Blueprint. We can have songs where we, you know, are talking about smoking and drinking, but our main narrative and our main theme with hip hop needs to be liberatory music, needs to be mm -hmm. protest music. Um, my, the next, the mixtape that I'm coming with, you know, I'm kind of nervous because I'm, you know, I'm, you know, when I got into music, you know, I really put a lot of restrictions on myself. I told myself that I wasn't going to say, you know, I wasn't going to ever talk about killing niggas or black men, or I wasn't going to ever talk about doing drugs or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, outside of weed. Uh, but mm -hmm. with the new album, with the new mixtape, it's called, uh, Shits and Gigs, Shits and Gigs, the mm -hmm. mixtape, volume one. It's a play on like Shits and Giggles. Mm -hmm. So Shits and Giggles is like, you know, you do something for, for entertainment. When you yeah, do something yeah, for Shits yeah, and Giggles, you do it for, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for fun. So I really, for this mixtape, I allow myself to have fun with the music. Mm -hmm. just, you know, I'm not definitely not talking about killing no niggas or nothing like that, but it's definitely, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, it's just me having fun with the music. And just because this, this, unapologetically bass in my spirit it still seeps into the music and we got some conscious tracks on there but there's a lot of tracks on there that are just me enjoying the music and hopefully like trying to make something that's vibey that the people will listen to and they'll vibe like okay damn this is a vibe right here and hopefully i can move that larger audience because i know that most people don't listen to music for black pop most people don't listen to music for to get information and get conscious people listen to music for an escape get away from all of the racism and everything mm -hmm. so uh the new the new mixtape is much more trying to catch them there i know that a lot of shit's going on in the world i know they want to get away from it so i don't want to pigeonhole myself to just being this oh he's a conscious rapper i want people to know like, i'm a real I'm a real rapper out here and mm -hmm. I can rap about anything. I just choose to rap about liberation messages for my people. But uh, mm -hmm. the shits and gigs mixtape has got something for everybody on there. Man. And that's, and that's one thing you said is just have fun, man. It's like, even when you're doing it, like you got to have fun in life. And that's a lot of people, you know, we, this struggle and in this fight, we ain't never going to stop fighting for this. But at the same time, you got, you can't like, it's not good for your mental sanity to just be, you know, 
to keep that bottled up and you stress all the time, you got to find ways to, you know, let that out and uh, get that voice out. And you've done that in a way that's productive and, you know, I mean, have a fun with it, like you just said. Um, so based on that, what is what is your obligation then as a black man and a black artist? Not for only for other black artists who who look up to you and aspire, you know, to be you and maybe even rap like you, but to you know, white people who are fans, white other white artists who are fans of you. Just what is your obligation to them and just to people out there in general? Uh, my obligation to like humanity is to just show what the possibilities are if you like walk in your divinity, if you like walk in your light. Because I'm telling you, man, I got kicked out of school for selling weed. Uh, you know, I, 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 you know, bribe people, I sold drugs, like my spirit, my mind was not on this frequency. I was on another path, a dark path. And I was due to, you know, my father not being in my life, being abused growing up and things like that. So, you know, it's like life really, really, you know, and it's really great because life really boils down to choices, mm-hmm. but it's crazy when you know, for black people, life boils down to choices, but in a system that's based on racism and white supremacy that's designed to destroy you, those choices like are made intentionally. Like somebody above you that you you got your choices down here, but somebody above you has already made a choice to create a system to destroy you. And then it's you gotta choices. make a choice just to survive. So it's like, mm-hmm. like how am I gonna survive in this thing? So uh what I would want to tell everybody is just like, you know, again, man, thoughts lead to feelings, feelings lead to actions, action leads to results. Like I truly, I was, I didn't get into this music thing till I was sleeping in my car, homeless, didn't have nothing going a week without eating. I'm talking about, I thought I was going to die in this car. And it was in that moment that I got in touch with my spirit more than I ever have in my life. And I would tell anybody like, everybody should know how long you can go without eating, you know, before you literally start to feel like I can't lift my arm. Like I can't, I can't walk to the door, you know, or how long you can go without that's what fasting is all about. Like, you know what I'm saying? You need to know how long, how far you can push your body because it's when you push your body to those furthest extents that you really, you really get in touch with this spiritual realm out here because that's mm-hmm. all this shit is. It's, it's one big spiritual playground, a bunch of energies that are in frequencies that are vibrating all that on different frequencies and different levels. And if you're at a certain frequency, you're not going to hear a lot of the shit down here, but if you're down here, you're not going to hear a lot of the shit up there. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, where, how are you vibrating? And I made a choice to vibrate, to cultivate my mind and to cultivate my spirit in a way that I would vibrate higher and higher every single day. And like at this point, I feel like I'm like a spiritual uh, magician, the way that I'm manipulating the universe. To, I'm bending the universe to my will. That's how I know I'm going to be on. That's how I know I'm going to have a buzz. That's how I know I've already, I already mm-hmm. know because I've already sent out this energy into the universe and told the universe like, okay, this is what I'm about to do. And this is what you finna do mm-hmm. like for me. You know what I'm saying? And I'm real. The intention is, is, is real. I, I don't, it ain't an ounce of doubt in my mind that it's not going to happen. So uh, just be, be true to yourself, whatever it is in you that drives you, that wakes you up every day, that motivates you, that, that makes your heart like race. When you think about it, that's what you should be aligning yourself up with. And when you do align yourself up with that, like uh, pour your entire being into it. I mean, to the point where, 
like it has to be obsessive and that's how that's the level that i've got on this music it's obsessive i i wake up every day 6 a.m you know i'm up writing reading it's like it's not enough hours in the day to do everything that i'm doing with this it's not enough hours in the day bro and it used it used to be but once you really tap all the way fucking it's like you realize how short of a time you have on this planet. It's so mm-hmm. small. You have like this little tiny window. Every day count, every second, every minute. You know. So uh, just be true to yourself. Uh, what you believe with conviction becomes your reality. So pick something, find something, but find something that's true to you. Believe it with conviction, and it will become your reality. Mm. Mm. Beautifully said, man. Beautifully said. So I mean, you were giving us a, a ton of solid stuff, man, and. I, I know you we've been talking a long time, but we've been hearing about like some great information, man. It's always great talking to you. Um, just one last thing. We're just when, when people hear the name Damien Square, Damien X, what like what do you want people to think of? 50 years from now, 100 years from now, even five years from now, what type of legacy, you know, you do want to live or do you want people to remember you by? Oh, that nigga put on for his people. Mm-hmm. Like when he was down here, when he was living, he was putting on for his people. He was he didn't forget about the struggle. He didn't forget about the liberation of his people. He didn't forget about what the what the ultimate goal goal was as a black man, at least in America, having a a, a physical existence. Like you know, and that I was the uh, like I was a you know I was a spiritual being that that lived life according to my own my own, the rules that I, and the boundaries that I set for myself. So, you know, uh, I just want, because, you know, I feel like in the next decade, 20 years, like rap is going to be all Mad Max. It's going to be all, like, it's going to be all, like, it's going to be a battlefield. Like rap is going to be, and music is going to be used as like weapons. It's going to be, you know, it's not going to be rapping about drugs. It's going to be all like, like, you know, it's going to be people, (laughs) It's gonna be used really as like like war symbols mm. and tags mm. and like you know, and uh, I, I want like the youth twenty fifty years from now to like when they look at my shit like damn this brother was on it back then like this nigga he mm-hmm. fifty years ago hundred years ago he was already like pushing this hard line with this and now this is what rap is all about we all like we black people and we use this rap as a weapon mm-hmm. against white supremacy now mm-hmm. like that's what it's mm-hmm. about. Like that's what it is, and this nigga was doing it when niggas was still rapping about you know ball man jeans and shit. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what I want to be remembered by. Just somebody that that that's you know sacrificed for his people and uh, hopefully make them proud. Man, man, and that's and that's then we can do more than that, but then we we gonna be, we gonna support you every step of the way. Just know that. Um, but for those out listening, we we appreciate you. This is uh, the first episode we got going, so. We'll be coming out with uh, some other segments too as well. So just make sure to stay tuned. Uh, boy, D-Squared, thank you again for ha- for uh, taking the time to, uh, you know, bless us basically with this information and knowledge uh, that you've grown up with and cured of all these years. Uh, any final words for the people or anything where they can go out and find you for social medias or any dates to look out for? Yeah, uh, come just check me out any platform damien square instagram facebook damien square d-a-m-i-o-n-s-q-u-a-r-e soundcloud spotify uh youtube damien x unplugged revolutionary political propaganda hip-hop with a motherfucking conscience this is decolonized minds productions and entertainment we coming we can't stop we won't stop till we pop you know what i'm saying 
<laughs> just like he said we'll stop man until we get to the top but uh we appreciate you guys listening and uh stay tuned till next time peace stay black always